Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Carissa Nitschie. And we're so glad you can join us. On Tuesday, November 8th, voters went to the polls in the United States for the midterm elections. With control of both chambers of the U.S. Congress hanging in the balance, the results of these elections have been highly anticipated, not only in the United States, but around the world, including in Europe. Although full results are not yet in, the Democratic Party has defied expectations of a red wave, putting up the best midterm performance for any incumbent party since 2002. It looks likely that the Democrats will lose their majority in the House of Representatives, albeit with a narrower, narrower than expected margin, while the Senate remains up for grabs with three seats, uh, three states yet to be called. In any case, the shift in congressional power raises questions about the Biden administration's future ability to execute on its legislative and foreign policy agenda. And so to unpack what these elections mean, including for the transatlantic relationship, we're very happy to have Steve Erlanger back to the podcast and to welcome Douglas Kreiner with us today. Welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. Uh, very uh, quick bios. Steve is the chief diplomatic correspondent in Europe for the New York Times. Uh, he's a two-time Pulitzer Prize recipient and has previously served as the Times Bureau Chief in seven countries, including posts in London, Paris, Moscow, and Berlin. And Douglas Kreiner is the Clinton Ro uh, Rossiter Professor in American Institutions in the Department of Government at Cornell University. His research and teaching interests focus on American political institutions and the separation of powers, as well as on US foreign policy. Okay, um, Doug, I was hoping we could start with you and um, looking to you for a little American Politics 101. Um, can you tell us about what the pattern for midterm elections typically is and any thoughts on why the Democrats were able to buck the trend this time around? Sure, happy to. So yeah, as you uh, alluded to before, Andrea, this is a pretty extraordinary result in that president's parties usually lose in midterms, uh, specifically in their first midterm. Uh, so <clears throat> this is probably only the third uh, instance in modern history in which you've seen, uh, uh, you know, there are losses, but uh, possibly not in the Senate uh, and not so bad. And I think there are a couple of reasons why that might be so. Uh, and it's particularly striking given uh, the current economic crisis, you know, we are at uh, levels of uh, consumer confidence that are lower than they were in the midst of the Great Recession, uh, 2008, 2009. Uh, so uh, how did President Biden sort of and, and the Democrats pull this off? Part of it is just that we are in a dramatically different environment. Uh, ceilings are much lower than ever before and floors are much higher than ever before. So we're just not going to see the swings that we used to see in the past. Um, Fast forward to, or I'm sorry, rewind back to 2010 when President Obama said, you know, we took a good shellacking. You know, Democrats had a big majorities uh, and a lot of seats that they had picked up in large part because of the Iraq war in 2006 and public antipathy toward it. And in 2008 with Obama at the top of the ticket and uh, riding sort of, you know, uh, economic angst and eight years of Republican rule. And it led them to win a lot of seats that they probably shouldn't have won. Uh, and so there was a, you know, a lot of room for them to fall. Whereas in this particular setting, there are many, many fewer places where Democrats were obviously playing defense. Uh, you throw in the Dobbs decision uh, and sort of the constant motivating factor for the Democratic base that is Donald Trump. Uh, and they were able to defy a lot of expert predictions uh, and relatively hold their own, uh, showing that we are still, as we were before, very much a 50-50 nation. Steve, um, over to you for your thoughts. And I mean, was this a repudiation of the MAGA extremism? Was it the victory for democracy that President Biden claimed um, it was yesterday? How, how, did, how do you see this election? Well, 
I think it worked pretty well for democracy in the sense we haven't had too many people yelling and screaming about false voting yet. I imagine this could still happen. I mean, some seats are awfully close, thinking of Colorado, um, and we may get these kinds of attacks. Um, but I was encouraged because one of the things that you and I have spoken about before, one of the basics of democracy is that people accept a vote, right? And one of the innovations Mr. Trump produced in this century was to reject this assumption that the vote was basically free and fair. And so as I'd, I'd like that to die down, but apparently about 30 vote deniers did get into Congress. Um, so it hasn't gone away and 2024 hangs over us like, I mean, you know, like a cloud. I mean, we'll see what happens. Um, we don't know what Mr. Trump's gonna do and we don't know what Ron DeSantis is gonna do, but you know, um, the fact that people vote for populist Republicans is not anti-democratic. People have the right to vote. I mean, so I think we, we shouldn't confuse the way democracy works with its outcomes. Kind of on this same thread, what were some of those issues that you think were really top of mind for voters at the polls? Was this about a referendum on Biden? Was it about a referendum on Trumpism and threats to democracy? You know, Dobbs decision, the economy kind of, how should we think about what voters were thinking about and how to weigh these? Doug, why don't you go? Sure. So, you know, it's awfully hard, I think, to, to get into that. The exit polls will provide some data as we get more access to it. But then even then, you know, uh, there's a big question of what direction the causal arrow is running. You know, is it these issues that motivated you to vote one way or another? Or are you a Democrat? Are you Republican? Are you for, uh, you know, President Trump or former President Trump, President Biden? You're sort of, you know, picking your issue positions accordingly. Um, I think the, the one point I would make on this is this was an extraordinary election in extraordinary times with record high and or well, not record high but very very high inflation for the last 30 years for most of my adult lifetime uh is record high uh you know all of the other problems uh that the president is facing uh in the same way that 2020 was an extraordinary election uh in the midst of a co of the COVID-19 pandemic and 2016 was an extraordinary election with our first female presidential candidate for a major party uh and a reality tv star and yet the outcomes for all three of those elections were sort of decidedly predictable. Uh, and that I think is kind of the, um, maybe the amazing part of it and really speaks to uh, maybe not the ideological polarization of, uh, of our electorate, but just how tribal our electorate really is. The, the sliver of swing voters uh, is awfully small. Uh, they are there, you know, candidate quality still matters. You know, we've seen that where there were certain candidates that have, uh, some problems uh, that are problematic records, problematic pasts that don't seem to be strong candidates, and they trailed significantly behind uh, other more normal standard candidates uh, at the tops of their tickets, thinking particularly of Senate candidates and, uh, and gubernatorial candidates where you see spreads of almost double digits. So there's some aspect that candidate quality matters, but I think this is very much a, a base election. Uh, <clears throat> you know, Democrats were able to use the threats to democracy uh, and the Dobbs decision in large and really the accomplishments, being able to run on the accomplishments uh, of the Biden administration using reconciliation uh, to show that they've gotten some of the things done that they promised to do, uh, and their base turned out in a way that presidential 
uh, co-partisan bases often don't in the first midterms because they're so disappointed that sort of the threat of the boogeyman, the threat of democracy, the threat of a fundamental right that people in this country have enjoyed for 50 years being taken away was enough to sort of make this look more like a presidential election, really, I think. And Democrats were able to turn out their base. Republicans also able to turn out their base and inflation being their biggest uh, issue to try and win over swing voters. Yeah, I would just add to that what made it extraordinary is we're in a way at war. I mean, we're fighting a proxy war, but it's a very serious test of democracy, of European security, of our alliances. And I think Biden's getting credit for managing this pretty well, which he didn't do in Afghanistan, right? But one takeaway I have from this election is actually getting policy done can help you, at least you don't get punished for it. I mean, Biden got through a lot of stuff that people noticed. Um, and, you know, one of the things people like to say, which I think is probably true, is one constant in the world is Joe Biden will always be underestimated. I mean, he's actually a pretty good politician. And I would also say, you know, the misreading in the last week or so of what the outcome was going to be be for whatever reason people could argue about that this great you know red tsunami unsure drove a lot of democrats to the polls and and i'd love to see polling on who decided to to vote in the last week or so um but it's still interesting i mean you know the republicans could still take both houses i mean it's not to be excluded so that would change things quite a lot. And, and even if they take just the House, uh, the tone of things will change on a lot of issues we can discuss. But um, it's not an inconsequential change, as well as the Democrats did, as well as the president did historically, um, it's still gonna make his life harder. I want to draw you out both just quickly on the role of the two presidents, one former president on the election, because there were some reports that, for example, in Pennsylvania, Fetterman didn't want Biden campaigning with him in the final weekend, in large part because of Biden's low levels of approval. Um, Doug, what role do, do you think that Biden had in this election? Did was I mean, I Steve was getting at kind of the fact of like stability, ability to pass legislation that that maybe turned out to be a positive thing. But he is, when you look at Biden's approval ratings, they're they're pretty low. Um, and so, what do you see as the role of both Biden and Trump on this election? And I guess, does it tell us anything about 2024? And maybe we can go there for a second before we get back to what the impact will be on legislation and, and the way the Congress will function. But does this give you any clues about what we should expect to, in 2024? Yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the reasons I think that you don't see uh, the president on the trail all that much uh, is the number of, of sort of swing, state, uh, swing seats in the House in particular, and even in the Senate, you know, where Sean and I said as, as well, is relatively small. Um, and so, you know, there are a whole bunch of, it's not like there are a lot of sort of lean democratic races where, you know, uh, a visit from the president would really turn out the base and be consequential. I think there are sort of a lot of safe seats and there are some really swingy seats uh, and the president's not a huge uh, uh, advantage for those candidates there. Uh, I think that there were a lot of Democrats that were relatively pleased to run on sort of the Biden Democratic Congress record. Uh, 
uh, to say this is what we've done. You know, we have indeed done a lot of what we promised. We, we did infrastructure uh, after the mythical infrastructure week for most of the preceding four years of the, of the Trump administration. Uh, you know, we made significant projects on climate change. So young voters, you know, we, we've delivered for you uh, sort of different things that we've done for different parts of the constituency, but we'll keep the, the administration itself sort of at arm's length. And, and I think the administration, you know, was comfortable playing that role for the most part uh, of sticking to very, very scripted, very few, and in very, very safe areas where they were concentrating, uh, you know, the, the president's own visits. And it's been sort of a low drama, less visible administration, uh, which I think is part of the appeal that uh, that Biden offered uh, in in 2020, uh, and that that carried over into um, into the elections. Then, of course, President Trump, you know, he is an ally for his chosen acolytes within the the MAGA movement, but there were an awful lot of Republicans that just wished that he would take a step back, noting that they seem, for the most part, to do better, uh, context or difference, of course, but, you know, when uh, when Donald Trump is not front and center, and it is the single most mobilizing uh, weapon that it gives their adversaries. And so I think both presidents, particularly President Trump, uh, because he is not as disciplined and he is not sort of uh, uh, as uh, channeled by the, the interests of the party and their chief strategists, uh, are liabilities for their parties in, in the midterm. I was smiling there for a second because I'm loving the meme that goes around based on the new Taylor Swift album, which I really am a fan of. That's, hi, it's me. I'm the problem. It's me um, with President Trump. So, Steve, does the Republican Party have a Trump problem? Well, I would say get your popcorn ready because the Republicans might, or, might have a quite a fun primary battle, right? I mean, we've always kind of assumed. I don't know why, but we've always kind of assumed that Trump controls the party and, and everybody's in awe of him and enthralled to him. But it's quite clear that he makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Um, and it's quite clear after Ron DeSantis's huge victory in Florida that this may be a Ron DeSantis moment um, where he can actually capture a lot of the Trump vote and add to it. Um, so I think, you know, Trump has a, a, a lot to consider. The one thing he doesn't want to do is lose, right? That's too embarrassing, particularly within his own party, right? It's one thing to lose the election, then you can claim everything's fraudulent, but to actually be rejected by, by the party, he considers, you know, just a renter of, of, Trump Plaza, right, um, would be very embarrassing. So I'm quite curious just to see because um, you, you know Republicans will study this very hard. I mean, as a party, I mean, I'm not saying anything that everyone doesn't know, but it's basically a minority party now in America. And it is largely a white Christian party and its interest is in having as few minorities vote as possible in general um, to lower the democratic base. Um, the Latino population is really interesting, but you know, basically um, the, the Republicans will continue, I think, to push all these voter control uh, issues in the states. And I think we need to watch that very, very carefully. I mean, even you know, in Arizona, there's talk of paper ballots, going back to paper ballots, right? 
I mean, and what is that? That is voter suppression. Um, and, and you, you know, I mean, the Republicans know what they're doing. You could call it cynical, maybe it's practical, but that's how, you know, uh, if they're gonna win the presidency, that's part of what they have to do. They have to keep the people who gave Obama such big victories at home. Like every good autocrat, he's deflecting blame for his decisions of which candidates he should back. I think he even threw Melania under the bus on his back. Yes, he, he did but so Steve, <laughs> does this, incredible. will this affect his announcement that we're all expecting next week? Um, do you think this affects his calculus in any way? Or is he just going to try to be that dictator and let all of the bad kind of slide off and he'll charge on? I, I can't get into his head. I've been trying since 1988, I have to say. In some ways, it's a very simple head. And in some ways, it's incredibly complicated because it's so instinctive. I mean, he's a really good politician himself, right? I mean, he's fun to listen to. People enjoy listening to him. I mean, he's he he has the quality of a really good demagogic speaker. And he touches on people's nerves in ways that other people don't. He, as they used to say about, about, about Heineken, reaches the parts that other peers don't reach. And yet it has a limit. It has a limit. And um, I think a lot of it really will be in his head about um, he doesn't want to be humiliated again. I'm going to head in a bit of a different direction and pull on a thread that you raised earlier, Steve, about just how much Biden was able to get done in his first two years, particularly in Congress with IRA, the infrastructure bill, chips and science. So given that we might see a Republican-controlled House and a Democratic-controlled Senate, and we are seeing extremely low margins in any case, right, what will we be able to get done in the next two years? Um, Doug, let's start. Oh, Steve, over to you. No, no, I was, I was just saying, Doug is probably better to answer this. But I mean, again, I don't underestimate Biden's ability to create weird legislative coalitions on particular issues. He's just very good at. I mean, he sort of knows how it's done. It's going to be much harder. And then there are going to be ugly things like if the Republicans take the House, there'll be you know investigations into Hunter Biden, and there'll be all kinds of noise about Taiwan and all kinds of difficult things. But again, I I really you you know we may be back in Obama time. You know his first two years he had Congress with him, and his last six he didn't, and it was harder. You do a certain amount by executive order, and you veto things, but. Again, I think Biden's just a much better at that than Obama. I'll never forget when Obama said once, everybody tells me I should go have a drink with Mitch McConnell. And he said, you go have a drink with Mitch McConnell. <laughs> Joe Biden will have a drink with Mitch McConnell. So um, personally, if we, could, if we can extend the debt ceiling, I'll be happy. <laughs> my, my greatest fear, right? That, uh, that, you know, that, do we really have to relive those years again? Uh, and uh, well, I guess it is an inflation plan, right? Uh, crash the financial system, and then you'll have other things to worry about. Um, you know, of course, I, I think that that is a, there was a really great point that Steve made earlier that it's a better than expected night 
day, week, we'll see when we're finally, uh, uh, several weeks maybe, uh, when it comes down to, to seeing the, the runoff in Georgia, than Democrats might have hoped for or expected. Uh, but they are in all probability going to lose the House, uh, and they might lose both chambers. And even one chamber is going to make life a lot more difficult for themselves. Uh, you know, Speaker Pelosi did a pretty amazing job at taking a somewhat fractured caucus uh, and making them bend to her will. Uh, you know, if you remember some of the earlier days when uh, Manchin was uh, sort of saying, well, you know, maybe I could accept this and maybe I could accept that with Build Back Better. And, you know, House progressives were like, absolutely not. You know, I get everything I want or I'm bolting. And then at the end, you know, they get a much more pared down version uh, that I think with then I think was even on the table in the first year of the Biden administration, and she whipped them all in the line uh, and they voted for it. So between that and reconciliation, they were able to get a number of things done. There were some bipartisan aspects. Uh, one of the key things there, though, is that Speaker Pelosi uh, and Leader Schumer controlled what came to the floor. Uh, and that's not going to be the case uh, under Republican control. So there may well be multiple things where you could get a majority or even sizable majorities, filibuster-proof majorities, uh, but that Speaker McCarthy may just simply not want to let come to the floor. So a, a classic example from the Obama era would be the DREAM Act, right? It actually passed in the Senate in one of its iterations with a filibuster-proof majority. It would have easily passed the House, but after uh, Cantor lost, Boehner's like, this is crazy. You know, uh, you know, let's invoke the Hastert rule. This is not going to pass with the majority of the majority. I'm just going to prevent it from coming to the floor. So that floor control is going to make uh, the president's legislative life uh, much more dangerous. And I think that, honestly, the, the number one objective will have to be, uh, yeah, doing what you can do through the regulatory code, through executive order, uh, and then trying to ensure that uh, there is not a debt ceiling crisis that, you know, paralyzes the country and, and leads uh, to the uh, threat of default with lasting consequences for an economy that is already in, uh, you know, in, in trouble in certain ways, uh, and that that'll be the number one legislative challenge I think the Biden administration faces. We can get into the investigations that Stephen brought up as well, you know, that, that'll be a little bit of a headache, I think, for the administration to deal with, including on foreign policy. Yeah, I definitely want to get into that. But um, Doug, is it a foregone conclusion that McCarthy will be speaker? Or um, given the kind of close margin, is, is his position as speaker at all in peril? I've kind of read a couple of things that maybe he would might have to make some very significant concessions to the far right side, right wing of the party. Um, what, what should we expect? Yeah, um, I wish I had my crystal ball uh, on that one. Uh, if, I, if I had to bet on it, I would still bet on uh, Kevin McCarthy becoming speaker. Um, why anyone would want that job after seeing what it did to, to Speaker Bain and Speaker Ryan is sort of beyond me. Uh, and I don't think that his task is going to be any easier. Uh, it, it's going to be particularly head, uh, headache inducing. On the one hand, uh, on the other, you know, um, not having to not having a Republican president, not having a Republican Senate, I think makes his job somewhat easier. Right. Uh, he's not actually going to be trying to pass legislation. He's just going to be throwing as many bombs. Uh, as he can at the administration and sort of positioning what the Republican messaging is going to be in the 2024 in the hopes that, you know, that they can expand their majority in the House, regain or expand it in the Senate and, and return a Republican to the presidency. So that I think will make it a little, his task a little bit easier than it was for, say, Speaker Ryan when you, you know, you have no excuses now. You've got the, the keys to the car. What can you actually deliver? Uh, and the answer was not very much. Uh, you know, which I think uh, contributed greatly to the Democratic route in, in 2018. 
Okay. So Doug, what are some of the bombs that can be thrown? And maybe we get into like, you know, should we expect investigations? What are, what, what else, what else should we be looking for or expecting? Yeah. So, um, you know, investigations, uh, certainly, you know, we'll be getting, um, you know, and I, I don't know how far they're going to go, but there's going to be a lot more scrutiny, of course, of all aspects of aid to Ukraine. Uh, I think that's been telegraphed. I don't think that the I don't think the Republican leadership has any interest in seriously trying to cut off funding or even making a a, a, a deal over that. But I mean, they've even telegraphed that humanitarian assistance now. You know, let's find every instance of some aspect of it that's not being spent the way in which a lot of people would want, and and highlighting that. Uh, Hunter Biden, you know, we, we've talked about briefly, you know, I think, unfortunately, you know, that'll, that'll be an issue. Uh, one other thing, I don't know, um, before the war in Ukraine broke out last year, I really wondered how much emphasis there would be on the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the way in which it was executed. Um, now, what's the calculus? You know, how much backward looking do you want to do? Uh, versus do you think that there's still political damage that can be inflicted on the White House? I wouldn't be a bit surprised if they didn't go back to Afghanistan, um, you know, but uh, Ukraine certainly complicates the politics of that. Investigations have always been incredibly political. Uh, I think they're more intensely that their goal is now it's always been a political aim, I think, from investigations in terms of how they want to leverage their influence to sort of uh, exact concessions or inflict political damage. I think now there's not much policy gain that uh, Republicans will want to hang, will want to sort of uh, leverage from it. It's all about the political damage they can inflict. Before we get to the foreign policy piece, one last question for you, Doug, and Steve, if you want to weigh on in on this as well. How much influence do you think the far right wing of the Republican Party will have in the new Congress? So, I mean, certainly like folks like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's saying Ukraine won't get one more penny and kind of all of the, those that that whole caucus um, what role do you envision them playing in the new Congress? Yeah, I, I think that their role is going to be strengthened and it, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, the comparisons between sort of mainstream Republicans trying to manage the uh, the Tea Party wing of the party. And this particular case, right, you have a, a similar dynamic, but maybe uh, more on the sort of extreme right, uh, fewer mainstream. And the extreme right is now sort of allied with, uh, you know, the leading contender for the Republican nomination in 2024, which is not really the case uh, with the Tea Party previously. So, you know, um, and they're going to have that megaphone of Donald Trump that's going to be uh, amplifying everything they do uh, and turning, you know, his aim on fellow Republicans. The, the Reagan rule of thou shalt not Ill, uh, speak ill of a fellow Republican is gone, right? Uh, President Trump is fully willing to do that. Uh, and they have an important ally with a, with quite a megaphone uh, to amplify the amount of trouble that they can place uh, on those who, you know, you become a, a party of government and now you've got some things that you have to do. Uh, and that they're going to make life awfully difficult for those who want to uh, to uh, uphold those institutional responsibilities that they'll that they will likely have uh, if they're returning the majority. Hey, Steve, it's time for the question that many have been obsessed with for the last several weeks is how will the new U.S. Congress impact U.S. support for Ukraine? Um, I think Doug put his finger on a lot of it, which is will be oversight. And look, I mean, you know, we forget that eight months ago we thought Ukraine was a pretty corrupt, nasty little place. And of course, now we think it's a perfect democracy. 
and it has its issues, and the issues will become even higher when you get to issues of reconstruction aid and contracts. I mean, let alone military contracts, but I mean, who's going to rebuild Ukraine and at what price and so on. So I think you will get a lot of oversight. I, I would also say to Doug, I'm sure there'll be hearings into Afghanistan because <laughs> this is something to embarrass Biden about. So I'm mm -hmm. sure that's going to happen. Um, and Tony Blinken's going to have a very hard time. And so will Jake Sullivan. Um, but on Ukraine, I think it's okay. I mean, I think basically there's bipartisan agreement that this is a serious issue and and our values are out there. And, you know, even MAGA Republic, I mean, you know, everybody sh says they share the same values. I mean, they share them in a slightly different way, but, you know, they believe in democracy and they believe in freedom and they believe that, you know, Russia shouldn't trample over NATO and Central Europe. NATO has been one of the great bipartisan uh, issues forever. I mean, basically, even when Trump was complaining about NATO, Congress was very much there and actually raised raised military spending. You know, put we put American troops into Europe under President Trump, right? So. I worry a little bit less about that. As for the Europeans, they're going to get under much more pressure to spend more, deliver more. I mean, I think that is for sure. We're going to be back to a burden-sharing kind of debate, and it's a rich one, an important one, and, and I think Europeans are kind of bracing themselves. And then, you know, you didn't bring this up, but China, I think, will be the other big, big one that we could talk about. I mean, one of the things, if Kevin McCarthy becomes speaker he wants to do is go back to Taiwan and remember what happened last time the house speaker went and what will the Chinese do in response right I mean it's it's going to be a very tense period and I think the, the Europeans too will come under much more pressure to toe Washington's line particularly the Germans right let's not put business first you know let's not be vulnerable let's be resilient. And of course, even, you know, I mean, others may disagree, but it's quite clear to me that the Democratic Party now is not a free trade party, and neither is the Republican Party. It's protectionist. It's We call it industrial policy. That's what the French call it, and that's what we're doing. And, and we're going to have fights with allies about that. We're all already having that with the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, but um, this, I think, is the kind of new debate. So I'm not worried about Ukraine until we get to the spring. The big issue always with Ukraine is the people who live closest to Ukraine and Russia, like the Europeans, um, East Europeans, Baltics may wanna send tanks to Moscow and drag Putin to the Hague, but that's not gonna happen. And West Europeans don't want an open-ended democracy project that doesn't have any resolution in sight. And so this debate, I think, will get tougher. And I'm not sure where, where the Republicans will come down. I mean, if you listen to the campaign talk from some people, like McCarthy and Vance, they will say, you know, no blank checks and so on and so on. But when push comes to shove, I don't think they want to be responsible for, for Ukraine, quote, 
unquote losing somehow. Um, and 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 but I think this kind of gets postponed until the spring fighting season when we see what actually the Ukrainians can do to push the Russians further back, even beyond the lines of of February 23rd. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, one quick follow-up. Um, there was some speculation about um, passing another significant aid package in the lame duck period. Are you expecting that? Um, I'm sure they'll they'll do more. I mean, you know, 40 billion is so much money that they've already done. I mean, I think we've said this, but it's like 90% of the entire French defense budget, right? And the French have a real army and nuclear weapons and a navy and everything else. So it's really a lot of money. And I think a lot of it's not been spent yet, right? So, you know, there will always be a question. Ukraine will rightly always want more. And, and, and in fact, I've heard that Biden's been so angry with Zelensky for seeming ungrateful when, whenever the US gives a big tranche of things, he's immediately asking for more that they now send the American ambassador to go talk to him to calm him down but before announcements get made, you know, because, um, but I, you know, it's, it's a very difficult thing. Seeing the end of this is very difficult. And, and there are people who raise the question and get criticized for even raising the question. But I think it's a question that's gonna come up more and more. Yeah, I agree. And there's more and more, um pressure demand for the administration to be able to articulate a policy rather than this kind of posture where they're kind of delegating US interest to Ukraine. So that that pressure to me is all seems to be growing. But Krista, over to you. So um, picking up on what Steve just put on the table on China, um, Doug, I'd love to first turn to you on this question of Really, what can Congress do in this area? What is their role in shaping the administration's China policy? You know, you've talked a lot about oversight. What might we expect from that in the next two years? And then there have been murmurings, too, from House Minority Leader McCarthy about standing up a House Permanent Select Committee on China. So how do you kind of see that um, proceeding? And then um, over to you, Steve, after that on kind of some questions about, do you think this will drive a real wedge between the U.S. and Europe if we see a more hawkish U.S.-China policy, especially given some of the recent news coming out of capitals in Europe who are, you know, starting to harden that stance on China. So Doug, turning to you first. Sure. So, you know, um, there are certainly some things that Congress can do. Uh, the question really, I think, comes down to what the incentives are. You know, uh, to what extent does Congress want to get out in front of this issue and try and play a lead role? For the most part, on most foreign policy issues, uh, members just don't have that interest, right? Um, you know, it's not in their immediate electoral interest. It's more remote for most of their constituencies uh, in Senate and particularly in the House. Um, you know, so I think a lot really view this through sort of a broader political game. Uh, it's much easier for them to be reactive, right? It, it's sort of much easier to, uh, you know, maybe make some statements about Afghanistan and then see how things shake out and then try and influence policy post ex facto, really hammering the administration when it takes when it makes missteps. So um, hard on China is is not bad politics, I think, on either side of the aisle at the moment. Uh, and so there are going to be opportunities, I think, uh, for Republicans to try and position themselves as even sort of regaining that uh, Trumpist edge on uh, as being China hawks and, and taking a more aggressive stance. 
Uh, and I think they're doing that primarily uh, in terms of putting some pressure on the Biden administration, but sort of politically making their life a little bit more difficult. Uh, but I don't think that uh, that on a list of priorities for the you know an incoming uh, Republican House or Senate majority, I think that's relatively low in terms of actually trying to push the administration one way or the other. It's sort of taking out a position, you know, putting out there what the Republican brand on this issue is going to be, and then watching the Biden administration's reaction uh, and waiting for any opportunity to hammer them should uh, that policy fail to sort of bear the fruits that were being promised. Maybe really quick before we go to Steve on the European reaction, because the other thing that I think a lot of Europeans are watching watching closely, which you mentioned, Steve, is the trade issue. And again, is there a role for Congress on on any of these issues and kind of what what do you expect this new composition to mean for the future of trade? Or are we really moving in a more protectionist direction as the Europeans fear? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you go back to the history of U.S. trade policy, uh, the, all the delegation of the executive branch has usually been Congress saying, please save us from ourselves, right? Like our, our incentives are still aligned, that protectionism is, is the right answer, right? Like, you know, we, we have concentrated interests, those interests are in our constituency, so we've got to go out and defend those. So uh, if, you're, if Europeans are looking for, you know, a, a shift in the partisan composition of Congress to sort of lead to a more liberalization of, of trade policy or the uh, rolling back by American uh, components of uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, that's, that's just not going to happen, right? The, it's not in the interest of members to do that. Uh, it really is going to come down to the executive branch and whether or not you know, there are things that they can do with the discretion that are given the, uh, that are that's given to the executive branch within the scope of the law for whether or not they uh, want to are able to sort of moderate some of those uh, uh, policies and, and requirements. But uh, I don't think that the, the shift in Congress is going to do anything to move the needle on that. I mean, I would say only one thing. There is the wing of Republicans who care desperately about Taiwan. And, you, you know, it's a cliche, but they want to move from strategic ambiguity to strategic clarity i.e. we will defend Taiwan militarily. Now, the president has said that himself three times, and he's been walked back each time, um, but it's out in the air. Um, I don't think that Taiwanese want that commitment right now because it can seem provocative, um, but I think there is a risk that you, you know Republicans with the Taiwan Relations Act and different things will push things far enough to make Beijing really nervous, um, and that makes Taiwan nervous. I mean, but um, I think it would be okay. I mean, the big problem for the Europeans is they are not China's peer rival, and they don't wanna be the co-pilot in the American fighter plane that's flying to Beijing. They have big economic interests in China, which the United States does too, by the way, um, and they get they get it. It's not like they're naive. I mean, they understand the risks and they are working toward, you know, I wouldn't say decoupling, but the favorite word is resilience, which is figuring out ways to not be too dependent on China. The or diversification. I feel like that one is definitely yeah. in the... Yeah, no, no, that's right. I mean, you know, and, and even in Germany, which, you know, Schultz has gotten very criticized for going to Beijing and bringing a big business delegation, but it's really important to Germany and, and Germany will have to wean itself and it knows that. But, you know, it's like St. Augustine said, not yet, O oh Lord. 
right? I mean, that's the problem. So people get it, um, but they don't want to be pushed into losing this huge market. And it is a huge market. I mean, I think Volkswagen sells 40% of its cars in China, and that's where it gets all its batteries. And if we're not careful, we're going to make China a battery superpower as we're trying to move toward electric cars, right? I mean, so it's a very delicate balance. And, and for example, on batteries, this Inflation Reduction Act, I was talking to American officials about this. It's written, I mean, they'll never pass another one. It only passed by one vote, right? But um, the, the section on batteries is so restrictive, I'm not even sure North American companies can build a battery that's, you know, it follows all of those rules, getting all its material from from um, from North America, etc. So this will come. I mean, the Europeans get it. They know pressure will be on them, particularly on Germany. I expect another round of Germany bashing, which is always very easy to do. Um, but um, you know, I must say, I do think the Germans begin to get it. The Greens get it. The Free Democrats get it. Schultz himself gets it too. And he did at least get Xi Jinping to say out loud that he thinks the use of, of um, nuclear weapons is not a really good idea. And that was the first time he'd actually said that in, in basically the Ukrainian context. That, yes, but although that is very consistent with China's nuclear policy, and yes. I think thing I the talk is cheap. It feels a little bit like she's just distancing himself reputationally, but I'm not sure they'll actually use any significant leverage to shape Putin's calculus. But okay, final question as we wrap. Um, I guess it, it, like in the spirit of transatlanticism, um, both Doug and Steve, if you had one or two takeaways that you think that Europeans should understand coming out of this election, what would they be? And you can you can think think on it for a second. But what do you hope people understand? What should they understand um, about the United States coming out of this election? Can I go first? Yeah. Just, I mean, I think they need to understand that Trump wasn't a parenthesis that he has changed the tone and tenor of American politics in a structural way. And they need to pay attention to that and they need to spend more time talking to Republicans themselves to figure out what drives this polarization. Um, America's too important for everyone and Europe is just too fond, I mean, Central Europe, you know, likes Republicans generally, but Western Europe tends not to. And um, the polarization matters. The sense that America first kind of matters. Um, so I just think they shouldn't be complacent about these changes in American political culture. And maybe they won't last forever, but I think they're gonna last for um, quite some time. Yeah, I would largely echo that. Um, uh, interestingly, I was reading uh, Cuadra de la Serra this morning, and uh, you know they had a large spread on sort of the new Trumps and different Trumpist voices of different people that won. Um, so you know that was reassuring to see. But you know that um, really understanding that sort of you know uh, 
when we used to have, in, in a way, I think the big swings that we used to have, you know, even uh, as recently as 2018, but, uh, you know, um, 2010, certainly, and, and other midterms, these were healthy things in a democracy in some sense, right? There was this idea that, you know, uh, if, if one, if the pendulum swings too far in one direction or another, the American center comes and, you know, they want someone to balance out. Uh, and what we saw this time is, yeah, a little bit of that, but it's much more muted uh, because it speaks to just how divided we really are. Uh, you know, that I think this is the first time that normally people who somewhat disapprove of the president, uh, the president usually does, or the president's party in the midterm does very, very poorly among that group. Uh, and Democrats this time were about plus, not plus 20, but there were 20 points above uh, the historical average, I believe, uh, on how they did with people who said they somewhat disapproved of Joe Biden. And some of those people are Democrats, right? Uh, and there, there's some aspect to that. But that, you know, you can have historical trends, particularly bad economic times and, and uh, time of crisis, and that you don't have a big swing tells us something that we are pretty frozen uh, as a country, uh, that there's a lot of people that cannot be moved off of their priors. We're intensely divided. Uh, and that that's going to lead to a, a degree of sort of enforced antagonism uh, you know, that's going to threaten bipartisan efforts on a, a range of things that can spill over uh, into a lot of issues that, uh, that affect the rest of the world. Yeah, both great points. Steve, as you were talking, I was thinking about, or actually as both of you were speaking, kind of we have this debate in the Russia context of like to what extent will Putinism outlast Putin? I, I mean, it feels a little bit similar in the United States to what extent will Trumpism outlive Trump? Um, and so, yeah, it's all up for debate. But uh, wow, this was such a helpful conversation. Um, I'm really grateful that you both took the time to join us um, and hope that we'll continue these conversations um, moving forward. So thank you to you both. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.